0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 27th edition of the Work Comp Academy weekly news. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So, let's get started with our litigation report. Last March, Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma was exploring bankruptcy to limit liability from thousands of lawsuits alleging the drug manufacturer contributed to the deadly opioid crisis. That liability could now topple the wealthy owners of the privately held company, company, the Sackler family. A number of states, and now this week, the Minnesota Attorney General is naming members of the Sackler family as defendants in the case. The Attorney General alleges that their misconduct led directly to damage and death in every community in Minnesota. He added that the family knew what they were doing and that they did it anyway and he intends to hold them personally accountable for the harm they have done to the people of his state. He's seeking to add eight members of the Sackler family as individual defendants after finding that each played a role in allegedly deceptive marketing tactics at a granular level. He alleges that the Sackler family members attended sales meetings and directed compensation of Purdue's sales force in ways that encouraged inappropriate opioid prescriptions. He added that the family knew of the addictive power of opioids as early as 1999, but dismissed and withheld such information for years. The Sackler family described the lawsuit as baseless and a misguided attempt to place blame where it does not belong for a complex public health crisis. And Purdue Pharma notched a legal win this week when a North Dakota judge dismissed that state's claim that the company minimized risk and inflated the benefits of long-term use of its narcotic painkillers. The North Dakota judge found holding Purdue solely responsible for the entire opioid epidemic in North Dakota is difficult, especially given Purdue's small share of the overall market for lawful opioids. The North Dakota Attorney General said he will appeal the ruling. And now our crime report a plastic surgeon with offices in Beverly Hills and Newport Beach is accused of performing unnecessary surgeries on patients as part of an insurance fraud scheme. His patients also claim he allowed USC residents and fellows that he trains at that facility to operate on them without their consent. Dr. J. Calvert trains USC-affiliated fellows through a fellowship program called the Marina Fox Aesthetic Surgery Fellowship. Natalie West, a former patient, is suing Dr. Calvert and USC for fraud and medical battery. West alleges she paid Dr. Calvert nearly $25,000 for a cosmetic rhinoplasty to fix the tip of her nose after a previous accident. According to her lawsuit, she had approximately 12 additional surgeries or medical procedures, many of which were performed by USC students, residents, or fellows, rather than by Dr. Calvert himself. She said Calvert told her the revision surgeries would be free of charge, given she had already paid him the $25,000 cash For the primary surgery. All of her surgeries were elective cosmetic surgeries, meaning they were not covered under insurance. But according to her lawsuit, she discovered that Dr. Calvert had fraudulently billed her insurance over $520,000 and fraudulently collected over $330,000 on top of accepting her $25,000 in cash for her first nose job. The lawsuit alleges that Dr. Calvert's routinely falsely diagnosed West with nasal airway obstruction, which is a scheme she says to portray her surgeries as medically necessary to her insurance so she could bill them. Calvert's attorney said the case will be vigorously defended and ultimately rejected by the court. But a second plaintiff, Michael Houston, alleges Dr. Calvert falsely diagnosed him with nasal airway obstruction several times. Although Dr. Calvert reported Houston was injured by a box falling on his nose, Houston alleges there was no accident, there was no box, And he went to Dr. Calvert because he did not like the way his nose looked. Houston says Calvert billed his insurance for over $150,000 for his surgery. And this is not the first time Calvert has faced allegations of fraud. Back in 2013, Calvert was accused with multiple felonies in Orange County, and accused of fabricating documents and performing unnecessary surgery as part of an insurance fraud scheme. But in 2014, prosecutors dropped all charges against him after they say Calvert agreed to pay restitution and agreed to change his billing practices. A federal grand jury indicted 57-year-old attorney Scott Norris Johnson of Carmichael charging him with three counts of false tax returns. Johnson allegedly owned and operated Disabled Access Prevents Injury Incorporated, DAPI, a legal uh, services corporation. He filed thousands of lawsuits, naming himself as a plaintiff in these lawsuits, and made claims under the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. And the California Disabled Persons Act and the California Unruh Civil Rights Act. Payments related to lawsuit settlements or awards are taxable unless they were paid on account of personal, physical injury, or physical sickness. Attorney Johnson allegedly underreported the taxable income he received from the lawsuit settlements and awards on his income tax returns. 48-year-old Benjamin Zimbroff Darrow, a Daly City chiropractor, pleaded no contest to felony insurance fraud and other charges related to a food allergy test that he offered his patients. The test was not covered by insurance companies and has not been proven effective. He had been charged with insurance fraud, the unlicensed practice of medicine, illegal laboratory markup and the theft of over $100,000, and he now faces up to two years in prison. Chiropractor Darrow operated three businesses out of the same office, Darrow Chiropractic, Pacific Spine and Joint, and Coastside Medical. He often offered patients a food allergy test called Alcat that involved drawing a blood sample in his office. Darrow performed the test on more than 250 patients and claimed to have been performing the blood work on site, but instead was paying about $600 to send them to an outside lab. The test was not covered by insurance because of its ineffectiveness at testing for food allergies, but Darrow manipulated the way he billed for it to disguise the fact that he was performing the ALCAT test. He billed insurance companies about $3,000 per test, receiving more than $790,000 in improper insurance payouts. Darrow remains out of custody on $350,000 bond and will return to court on July second for sentencing. And in medical news, workers exposed to welding fumes are more likely to develop lung cancer than those not exposed to the fumes. And the new study, published in the British Medical Journal Occupational and Environmental Medicine, suggests this holds true regardless of other risk factors like smoking or exposure to asbestos. This research will likely result in an increase of workers' compensation claims for lung cancer by employees in this industry. The researchers said that the welding fumes have previously been classified as possibly carcinogenic to people. For the current analysis, researchers examined data from 45 previously published studies, with a total of roughly 17 million participants. Overall, people who worked as welders or had exposure to welding fumes were 43% more likely to develop lung cancer. When researchers looked only at data from studies that accounted for both smoking and asbestos exposure, welding was still associated with a 17% higher risk of lung cancer. The researchers concluded that it is now clear that the increased lung cancer risk in welders is not fully explained by other factors. And with this review, welding fumes can be classified as carcinogenic to humans. Worldwide, an estimated 110 million workers are exposed to welding fumes, either as welders or as bystanders. Researchers led by a team from the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston were able to dramatically reduce the pain of fibromyalgia patients with medication that targeted insulin resistance. This discovery could dramatically alter the way that some forms of chronic pain can be identified and managed. Although the discovery is very preliminary, it may lead to a revolutionary shift on how fibromyalgia and related forms of chronic pain are treated. Thus, the new approach has the potential to save billions of dollars to the health care system and decrease many people's dependence on opiates for pain management. The team of researchers were able, for the first time, to separate patients with fibromyalgia from normal individuals using a common blood test for insulin resistance or prediabetes. They then treated the fibromyalgia patients with a medication targeting insulin resistance, which then dramatically reduced their pain levels. Fibromyalgia is one of the most common conditions causing chronic pain and disability the global economic impact of fibromyalgia is enormous. In the U.S. alone, and related health care costs are about $100 billion each year. Despite extensive research, the cause of fibromyalgia is unknown, so there's no specific diagnostics or therapies for this condition other than pain-reducing drugs. Earlier studies discovered that insulin resistance causes dysfunction within the brain's small blood vessels. Since this issue is also present in fibromyalgia, researchers investigated whether insulin resistance is the missing link in this disorder. They showed that most, if not all, patients with fibromyalgia can be identified by their A1C levels, which reflects average blood sugar levels over the past two to three months, Pre-diabetics with slightly elevated A1C values carry a higher risk of developing central brain pain, a hallmark of fibromyalgia and other chronic pain disorders. For the fibromyalgia patients in the study, metformin, a drug developed to combat insulin resistance, was added to their current medications. They showed dramatic reductions in their pain levels. A team of internet entrepreneurs in downtown Manhattan wants to revolutionize how Americans get prescription drugs. Their company, Blink Health, has a crazy idea. Let drug prescription customers shop for the best deal. The founders of Blink Health seek to eliminate the middleman and comparison shop at their website to see if you can get a better deal than what's being offered by the insurance plan or the drugstore. Blink Health claims that the pharmacy business remains largely untouched because customers have not easily been able to shop online for a better price. People who are buying drugs the way they bought them in the pre-digital age, which is at the drugstore. The dominant middlemen are the pharmacy benefit managers or PBMS which are hired by private and government health insurance plans to administer drug benefits. Dozens of small PBMs once competed for business, but today three large firms, Express Scripts, CVS Caremark, and Optum Rx together control more than 75% of the market. Jeffrey Chaikin, together with his younger brother Matthew, started Blink Health in his downtown apartment four years ago. Today it has 600,000 customers and an office in Soho with 220 employees. To help them run the company, the Chaykins brought in veterans of online companies like Kayak as well as the drug industry, including Bill Doyle, who'd spent decades working for Johnson & Johnson. Blink negotiates with drug manufacturers using its purchasing power to extract discounts off of the list price. Then, instead of collecting secret rebates or steering patients to a preferred drug, it posts all the discounted prices on its website. Instead of forcing patients to turn over their prescriptions to a pharmacist to find out what it will cost, Blink lets doctors and patients shop on the web before making a commitment to buy. For example, a month's supply for the generic version of Lipitor would typically cost more than $100 at CVS and more than $200 at Walgreens. At Blink's website, you can typically find the Lipitor Generic priced under $9 and the Crestor under 12 If you buy it from Blink, you can get it delivered to your home or pick it up at a local drugstore. Independent pharmacies have been eager to work with Blink because it's simpler and more profitable than dealing with insurance plans. The prices of most medical procedures and hospital stays are are as complex and opaque as they are for prescription drugs and are ripe targets for these emerging disruptive technologies. Drug costs and utilization were both down for workers' comp payers in 2018. Combined with tighter regulatory control, this trend helped to reduce drug spend by nearly 4% over 2017. That was the key takeaway from MyMatrix's 2018 Workers' Compensation Drug Trend Report. Brand-name versions of the most common drugs prescribed to injured workers are 65% more expensive today than they were in 2014. Generics, on the other hand, have dropped 35% in price over the same time period. Together, lower prices and higher utilization of generics have driven an overall 0.9% reduction in unit costs. Between 2019 and 2022, a number of brand-name drugs will also lose patent production, opening the door for manufacturers to bring more generic versions to market. Nine of these are indicated for pain and inflammation, and thus represent potential new alternatives to opioids as payers shift away from addictive painkillers. Average opioid spending among MyMatrix payers has dropped by 15% thanks to broad efforts at prescriber education and more aggressive prescription management. In 2017, 21% of injured workers used an opioid for at least 30 days. But in 2018, that rate dropped to 17.6%. Utilization among both NSAIDs and gabapentin, another non-opioid alternative, increased slightly, suggesting that prescribers are beginning to favor these non-addictive pain management drugs over opioids. The use of compound medications has been significantly curtailed, to the point where they are nearly extinct in the world of workers' comp. Utilization has decreased 24% since 2017, driving a 43% reduction in spending. In 2018, only 0.2% of medications were compounded creams. And in regulatory news, Congresswoman Catherine Clark and Congressman Hal Rogers released a report claiming that Purdue Pharma funded organizations, people, and research to influence the World Health Organization opioid prescribing recommendations. The report reveals that two WHO guidelines released in 2011 and 2012 contain dangerously misleading and in some instances outright false claims about the safety and efficacy of prescription opioids. Alarmingly, these guidelines mirror Purdue's marketing strategies to increase prescriptions and expand sales. The report uncovers that in 2011, the World Health Organization published a guidance document called Ensuring Balance in National Policies on Controlled Substances, which was guidance for availability and accessibility of controlled medicines, In addition to other falsehoods, the guidance repeats produce disproven claim that dependence occurs in less than 1% of patients. Then in 2012, the World Health Organization published a second guidance document called Pharmacological Treatment of Persistent Pain in Children with Medical Illnesses. It claimed that there is no maximum dosage of of strong opioids like OxyContin for children. The World Health Organization published this claim despite the fact that U.S. public health agencies had already found that fatal overdoses skyrocket in adult patients who are prescribed above 90 morphine milligram equivalents per day. The congressional report claims that the World Health Organization appears to be lending the opioid industry its voice and credibility. And as a result, a trusted public health organization is trafficking dangerous misinformation that could lead to a global opioid epidemic. In addition, they claim Purdue was able to insert their marketing strategies into the World Health Organization by creating and funding front organizations who participated in research that acted as the foundation for the World Health Organization's guideline documents. And in other news, CompWest Insurance is continuing its expansion in California and the West. It is adding more than 50 new classifications that broaden its workers' compensation appetite in construction, manufacturing, and other areas. This is the largest class code expansion and the sixth consecutive year its appetite has been expanded compwest's current class expansion broadens the company's ability to write new business the rollout will take place in three phases through august compwest focuses on mid-sized businesses in healthcare hospitality manufacturing professional services construction retail and wholesale services compwest insurance is part of the accident fund holdings which is a workers' compensation insurance holding company conducting business through four operating units in the U.S. Accident Fund Companies, located in Lansing, Michigan, United Heartland, located in New Berlin, Wisconsin, CompWest, located in San Francisco, and Third Coast Underwriters, located in Chicago. Accident Fund Holdings is one of the largest privately held monoline workers' compensation carriers in the country. The company was founded in 1912 as a Michigan Accident Fund. Accident Fund Insurance Company of America operates as a subsidiary of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan Incorporated. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for workers compensation news on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, and Langaman. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.